scripture reading this morning is from the book of 2 Kings. We'll be reading chapter 22, verses 8 through 20, then chapter 23, verses 10 through 20, and 24 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But the Lord, or but the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding these words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, and they should, come, they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back the word to the king. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Moloch. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars of the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. 
Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah, and as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is that monument I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone, and the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines, also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel, and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with, with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, church. Morning. Great to see you on this rainy morning. Um, I don't know how people live in the Northwest, but apparently people like it. So um, me, I, I already miss the sun, but uh, great to be here with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray and we'll jump into the text. Father in heaven, we praise you. God, we're so thankful for uh, your commitment to us. God, even when our commitment falters, even when we struggle and fail, God, you, uh, you're faithful to us. God, that never changes. You're good to us. Uh, so thank you so much for your constancy, your, for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you for who you are, God. Thank you for the beauty and the joy of your presence. And God, would you just realign our hearts, God, so that we would take joy uh, in your goodness and in your presence, God. Lord, we need you more than we need anything else. Uh, we love you. God, we humble ourselves before you. Would you be glorified in our hearts and among us, God? We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Have you guys ever been in a situation? Have you ever found yourself in a situation dealing with a problem? You're dealing with this problem that actually required a really simple solution. Something like that ever happened to you? You know, like, honey, where are my keys? Well, have you checked your pocket? Like that, that kind of thing. Um, I've, this has happened to me like so many times that my 
psyche is like blocking out certain parts of my life um, from remembering this. I know that I have better examples than what I'm about to say, but so often I find that I'm facing a problem that just requires attention to a simple solution. Uh, one prominent example from my life is anytime I'm putting together IKEA furniture. Who here has had the joy of putting together IKEA furniture? Enough of you, but um, you know, you get this box from IKEA, so like you put together this dresser, you get this big box, there's like 100 pieces, and you have to put the whole thing together with a little Allen wrench. Right? You get instructions that look like this. Very simple, rudimentary, you know, this is good, this is bad. Um, and then, of course, a uh, hundred little pieces and, you know, you're screwing things together with a butter knife or using an Allen wrench to put stuff together. Um, at one point in my life, I promised myself that I would never again put together IKEA furniture. Unfortunately, that never happened. Um, I, I, I was putting something together like a couple months ago. But every time I put together IKEA furniture, I begin by looking at the instructions. I look at the instructions for about five minutes. I'm like, oh, this is easy. This is going to be fine. So I continue for like about an hour without looking at the instructions. And what always happens is I've ended up putting something together upside down or backwards, and I got to go back and disassemble and then reassemble. And it turns out if I just would have looked at the instructions the entire time and followed it step by step, it never would have happened, right? It's a really simple solution. Just look at the instructions. The king that we are talking about today, King Josiah, shows us that what the people of God needed was actually a really simple solution. What the people of God were in, in desperate need of was a restored relationship with the Lord. He, they needed someone to turn them back to prioritize relationship with God. And that is exactly what Josiah does. If you have your Bibles, or you can look up on the screen, in chapter 23, towards the end, in verse 25, here we have the evaluation of Josiah, <clears throat> which the Lord says of him, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So Josiah is one of the few kings that gets an A-plus rating. It's basically him, Hezekiah, and then, of course, David. These are the high standards in, in Judah. And what is significant or what's specific about Josiah is that he turned to the Lord. Right? He repented. He turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might. That is what made him stand out above all the kings before him and above all the kings after him. And this turning to the Lord is, it implies that you're returning to something, to an ideal that has been previously established. Right? It implies that something has been broken, that there's been a broken relationship. So now he is returning back to that original ideal that had been established. He's returning back to relationship. And here's how we know. 
This text, right, is alluding to a text back from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is like a famous Old Testament passage. This would have been like the confession of orthodoxy for any Old Testament saint. It would have been like their Apostles' Creed. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. All right, so when the text tells us, when Kings tells us that Josiah turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, it is connecting what Josiah is doing back to this original standard that was given in Deuteronomy. And this standard, the standard that Josiah is returning to, is all about relationship. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. It's a simple solution, and it's a simple solution that maybe we didn't know we needed. I find that there are times in my life, there are times in our lives, when we just know that something is wrong. We feel like something is wrong, that something is off, our, our souls are turbulent, distressed, not at rest. We know something is off. We know that somehow we need to, to turn back to God and prioritize him again. But so often I think we overcomplicate it. What we don't need is a new devotional book. We don't need a new study. We don't need to get involved, more involved with a fight club. We don't need to start waking up earlier. We don't need to go to church more often. We don't need a new podcast. We don't need a new reading app. All of those are good things. But what we really need is simple. What we need is relationship. We need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. What we need is a right relationship with God. We need to return to a right relationship with God. And that is more or less our main idea this morning. Restoration, so restoration with God, is found through repentance. Uh, in other words, we could say that restoration is found through return. Right? We are turning back to the Lord. And the reason why I want to use repentance and return interchangeably is because repentance is by nature relational. When you repent, you are turning back to a relationship with the Lord. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but for me, um, the word repentance has kind of been colored and, and altered uh, by the Christian culture that I was surrounded with when I, when I first became a Christian. So I became a Christian when I was 16 years old, and all of my like Christian circles were fundamentalist, dispensational Christian circles. And if those words mean nothing to you, good, congratulations, because you're probably a happier person for it. Uh, I went to a, you know, after high school, I went to a uh, Baptist, fundamentalist, dispensational school. So it was, it was the culture that I was surrounded by. And so somewhere along the line, I picked up that repentance meant behavior modification. 
Repentance was more about behavior change than it was about anything else. Right? Don't smoke, don't drink, no tattoos, no R movies, all about behavior. Now, it's probably wise for a lot of us to abstain from those things and have boundaries with those things, but that's not the same thing as repentance. Repentance is inherently relational. So that's why I use the term return, because when we repent, we are turning back to God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. It's about loving the Lord. Three points that arise from the text this morning. Number one, repentance is founded on God's word. In other words, the grounds of our repentance is the word of the Lord. Two, it encompasses the heart and the soul. Right? So repentance is not just about behavior. It's about more than that. It's all-encompassing. The sphere of repentance is your whole heart and your whole life. And three, repentance results in unrelenting action. It's continuous. Repentance should become a lifestyle because, of course, we, none of us are perfect. We all struggle with sin, yet God calls us back into relationship with him. So a question to think about as we continue this morning. Where are you in need of a restored relationship with God? What part of your life do you need to get right with the Lord? What is preventing you from entering back into that restored relationship with God? These are questions that the text is asking of us, and uh, I think we do well to think about them through, uh, through our journey through the text. So let's continue with point number one. Repentance is founded on God's word. In verses 22, I mean in chapter 22, verses 8 through 20, we see that in their renovation of the temple, the priests make a discovery. They discover the book of the law, it is written. Um, and the book of the law, that's what we know as Deuteronomy. So they discover the book of Deuteronomy. And they present it to the king, to King Josiah. And Josiah's reaction is grief, shock, distress. Josiah's distraught over this discovery. And that is because God's word is crystal clear. It's crystal clear that unfaithfulness to the covenant means judgment. Covenant breaking results in disaster. Disobedience leads to destruction. You see, church, we do not have a God who uh, leads us in a confusing way. All right, God is not a God of confusion. He hasn't made following him a puzzle. He hasn't required us to have some sort of out-of-body experience or this kind of mountaintop experience or a special dream or anything like that. No, God has been very clear with us. His word is clear. It's clear that God requires faithfulness. And the thing that makes Josiah so different than his contemporaries, 
so different from so much of modern Christianity is that he heard God's word and he believed that it was true. He trusted God's word. He trusted that what God said was reality, that it was trustworthy. Kings before Josiah and after Josiah ignored God's word. They heard the the word of the Lord from the prophets, yet they ignored it. They didn't believe that it was true. What set Josiah apart, what made him a great king was actually really simple. He just believed God's word. So church, do you trust God's word? God's word has told us that uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Do you believe that that principle will guide your life? He has told us that therefore there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe what he has said about you? Or do you still live like you deserve shame more than love from God. God has said that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe that God can satisfy your soul and give you everything that you need, everything that you could ever want? Church, repentance, relationship is founded on God's word. It's founded on God's word because it's reliable, it is trustworthy, it is reality, even though we may not be able to see it. It is Josiah's faith in God's word that leads to this great restoration in Judah, in the land of Judah. So what I take from this, I think what we can learn from this in the modern church, is that what the church needs isn't the next biggest and brightest attraction. We don't need like the next shiny new object. So we don't need smoke machines and big stadium-sized church buildings. We don't need professional musicians or professional speakers. Our church services don't need to look like Coldplay concerts followed by a TED Talk. And now that'll attract a lot of people But that is not what the church is founded on. Now, we're more modest than that, so our our minds probably don't jump to the fancy church things like that. But I think we struggle with this too. I know I do at least. Personally, I've thought to myself, well, if if we just have like 10% more capacity in this room, then we'll all be a lot more comfortable and things will run a lot more smoothly. Or if we just had sliding doors that didn't make so much noise, then I wouldn't have to feel like I need to raise my voice so often. Or if the AC just started to work a little bit better, then we could all all bear the hour and a half that we spend in here together, at least in the summertime. The wonderful thing about God's word is that it is infinitely powerful. We are finite in our resources. We are finite in all the things that we do. And we might think of a hundred different things that the church should have, that the church needs, but that's not what we need. The only thing that we need is God's word. 
God's word is stable, steady. It is reliable. What we need is God's word. Repentance or restoration is found through repentance and repentance is founded upon the word of the Lord. That brings me to my second point. The second thing that Josiah teaches us about returning to the Lord is that it is all-encompassing. It encompasses heart and soul as well. You remember his evaluation that there was none like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might. Josiah was not just about behavior modification. For Josiah, this returning to the Lord was not a political move, right? He didn't get rid of all of the idols in Judah just to gain popularity with like the conservative contingent in Judah. This had nothing to do with politics for him. This wasn't even an attempt for him to escape judgment. If we look at uh, chapter 22, verses 17 through 20, we can see uh, God's word of judgment against Judah. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands, therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I have also heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Despite the coming destruction, Josiah still turned to the Lord wholeheartedly with all that he was. He still turned to the Lord, even though that he knew this disaster was going to affect his son and his son's son. And eventually the whole nation of Judah would lay in ruin. Despite the coming destruction, Josiah still turned to the Lord. Another way to think about this is Josiah really didn't have any incentive. Josiah did not have any incentive to repent, to turn to the Lord. The most genuine kind of repentance is the kind of repentance that seeks the Lord for his own sake. That's what we learn from Josiah's example. Obedience without incentive, well, it's likely genuine. So church, when you think about repentance in the areas that you need to repent, what is your incentive? We cannot confuse faithfulness with pragmatism. We might 
really want a certain outcome or result. But just because we're pursuing that result doesn't mean that we're truly repenting, truly humbling ourselves before God. And look, this really challenges me because so often my repentance is motivated by a desire to be spared from consequences. So often I treat God more like he's a police officer than a father. You know, please spare me this time. Please have mercy. I won't do it again. Promise I won't do it again. But God is not a police officer. He is a loving father. Repentance is inherently relational. He is calling us back to relationship with him. So often I forget that repentance is relational. It's about loving the Lord, right? With all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. So church, don't let anyone fool you. Repentance is not about the restoration of good circumstances. Repentance is not about the restoration of any kind of material wealth or status or any worldly thing that you could want. Repentance is about the restoration of relationship. And again, if I'm really honest with myself, I can see that I fall so far short of this. My repentance is so often conditioned by an outcome that I desire. It's so often it is conditioned by my circumstances, what I want to happen with my circumstances. My repentance is oftentimes worldly. It's about improving my situation. I have failed miserably at repenting for the right reasons. So praise God that he has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Because God sent his son to be like us, to, to have our sinful flesh, he was able to condemn sin in the flesh in order that he would make us righteous, so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled for us. Brothers and sisters, even in the way that we repent, even in the way that we pursue forgiveness, we have been affected, we have been weakened by the flesh, by our flesh. Our repentance has been altered, it has been influenced by our, it has been twisted by our sinful desires and motivations. But Christ has stepped in to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. I mean, how often do we think that God's grace is conditioned upon the strength and intensity of our repentance? Like how many tears we shed, how sorry we say that we are. The good news of the gospel 
is that God's grace is not conditioned upon the strength of your repentance. God's grace is conditioned upon the strength of your Savior. That is what we have to rest on. The strength of Jesus Christ. We will struggle, we will fail, even, in, even when we're pursuing forgiveness from God. But praise God, he has done for us what we were unable to do for ourselves. He did what our sinful flesh was unable to do. And this brings me to our last point this morning. So we know that Josiah turned to the Lord, even despite the judgment that was coming, and in, verse, in chapter 23, verses 4 through 20, so the, the majority of our reading this morning, uh, we see that his actions were consistent with his heart. Or we saw how Josiah removed and uprooted all the idolatry that was in the land. And really, it would have been so easy for him to slack off on this point. Right? He could have just like remove the, the biggest, most popular idols and shrines. But in his return to the Lord, he was incredibly thorough in his actions. His, his heart, his uh, turning to the Lord resulted in unrelenting, unceasing action to remove idolatry. Josiah took every measure, every measure that was possible to entirely root out idol worship. So he removed cult prostitutes. He removed high places, both the visible ones and the hidden ones. Uh, he destroyed the place where people were um, making offerings to, for, uh, to pagan gods, where they were uh, doing, committing child sacrifice, where they were offering their children to these pagan gods. He demolished that area. He even went to the place where so much of this idolatry started. If you guys remember back to the split of the kingdom, so um, earlier in our series in Kings, back in uh, 1 Kings chapter 13, we see that after the kingdom split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south, the king of Israel in the north, he established, he built two uh, golden calves, at the borders of his country to keep people from worshiping uh, the true God at the temple in Jerusalem. So these golden calves, these old, old idols, uh, Josiah destroyed even those, uh, even those places of idolatry. Josiah took no half measures in the way that he confronted and tackled idolatry in the land. He took out Visible idols and popular idols, and he, he took out hidden ones as well. He did this with impressive thoroughness, and we see that the wholeness of his heart in turning to the Lord was reflected in the thoroughness of his actions. After high school, um, I went to college for a year, um, Christian school. It was a great experience great, great college. Um, I had an awesome group of guys that I was able to spend time with. We were all very serious about our relationship with the Lord. Uh, we took spiritual discipline seriously. We took accountability seriously. And during this time, 
I felt that the Lord was calling me to pursue some training as a missionary. Uh, I felt like I needed to pursue training in missions. So what I did after one year in college is I, I took like a, a year off and joined an organization called Youth with a Mission, YWAM. Um, here's how I can describe YWAM if you've never heard of it. YWAM is like the easiest way to get onto the mission field. Uh, there's very little vetting involved, and it's multi-denominational. So needless to say, there's a lot of weird people that end up in YWAM. Um, it's diverse. That's one way you can think about it. One of my uh, classmates at this time, when we were going through this missionary training school, his name was Cornelius Armbruster. Uh, he was German, and of course, with a name like that, you'd expect him to be German. Uh, Cornelius was an interesting guy. He was a guy that didn't take any half measures. And um, I don't know if you've ever had the privilege, the joy, of meeting someone who learned like a different version of English than you, like a different kind of English. I don't know if you've had that experience, but uh, Cornelius was one of these people. So his English was off, you could say. He would use words in a way that I'm like, you know, brother, it really, that really doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, especially with some like uh, inappropriate like language. I'm like, dude, that, that definitely doesn't mean what you're, you're thinking right now. Um, so really funny, kind of interesting guy to talk to. And again, this guy, he was not the kind of person that took any half measures with anything. And he wanted to take uh, purity very seriously. And we were all supportive of him in that. Um, he, he had a fiance at the time. He wanted to honor his fiance. He wanted to establish really solid boundaries between him and his electronic devices. So what did he do? He takes his laptop, throws it out of the three-story building that he was uh, living on. Uh, thankfully, he checked beforehand to make sure no one was down there. But, you know, he trashes his laptop, gets rid of his cell phone. So he's got nothing. He's in, he's in Taiwan. It's not like this is home for him. But he's got nothing there. Uh, device-wise, uh, but he took no half measures. He knew that he had what he needed. His fiance was there. He had his Bible. He had a good community. He had what he needed. So uh, he was perfectly happy with doing that. True repentance, a true turning to the Lord, doesn't take any half measures. It's continuous it is unrelenting. It is a lifestyle, really. Martin Luther, another German, he says in his 95 Theses, in the first one, he says that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire Christian life would be one of repentance. Repentance is a lifestyle because true repentance is all about returning to a relationship with the Lord. Right? We know that we will struggle and sin and fail, but God graciously is calling us to turn back to him. He provides repentance as a way that we can receive his grace. King Josiah removed all the idols. He removed all the high places, not just the most visible ones. 
right? He removed the hidden idols as well. So as we look at this, as we think about this, church, I just want to ask you, what are your hidden idols? Maybe you've already taken care of your most visible idols, your most visible idolatry. But what do you have in the hidden corners of your heart? What are your hidden idols? Where are they located? Brothers and sisters, I can promise you that we can confront and tackle these idols head on because God has provided a king who takes care of idolatry for us, who demolishes idolatry. In the Old Testament, this king was Josiah, right? He wrecked all the idols in the land. But Josiah, his presence was a result of God's faithfulness. It was a result of God's promise. You see, Josiah came onto the scene. Josiah uh, did these sweeping reforms because God had spoken 300 years prior through a prophet that he would come and do this. Josiah had promised, or God had promised a king who would take care of idolatry. So this restoration, this reform that happens through Josiah's repentance happened because God is faithful to his word. 300 years prior, God made this promise about Josiah. A prophet named him by name. God did not leave his people to rot in their idolatry, but he provided a king to turn them back. Yeah, here's the thing about Josiah. As good as he was, as sweeping as his reforms were, as wholehearted and genuine as his repentance was, even he could not turn back the wrath of God. You look at verse 26, chapter 23, uh, verse 26. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The wrath of God was not turned back. As good as Josiah was, as as great as his evaluation was, we needed someone, we needed a king who would not only turn back the people to the Lord, right? We needed a king who would not only show us and teach us what true repentance looks like, but we needed a king who would pay for the penalty of all our unfaithfulness. We needed a king who would pay the penalty for all of our covenant breaking. We needed a king who would fulfill all righteousness. I imagine we're all familiar with how Jesus was baptized by his cousin John, John the Baptist. We know that story. Well, if you don't know that story, um, when Jesus is beginning his public ministry, he goes to his cousin John, who's baptizing people in the River Jordan, and he says to John, you need to baptize me. And John responds, "Um, wait a minute, how can I do that? I can't baptize you. You should be the one baptizing me. John is uncomfortable with this. He thinks that he shouldn't do it. Why? 
Because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. The book of Matthew tells us that as people, the book of Matthew tells us that people were confessing their sins as they were going to John to be baptized. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And here's the problem when Jesus is asking to be baptized in this baptism. He's got no sins to repent for. He's got no sins to confess. But Jesus answers him and he says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What's going on here, what Jesus is doing, is he, as our representative, is identifying himself with the repentant posture that we needed to have. He is, in a sense, taking ownership of the repentant hearts that we need. As our representative, he identifies himself with the repentance that we need to bring before God. Why? So that he may fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. This is why we don't get baptized with John's baptism. John's baptism proclaimed that repentance was needed. But Christian baptism, on the other hand, proclaims that righteousness has been fulfilled by no one other than Jesus Christ. Christian baptism is a sign, it is tangible evidence that righteousness is both promised and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, I don't know about you, but at times I've struggled to see how my baptism relates to like my ongoing Christian life. Well, this is one simple way that baptism relates to the Christian life. We can look back on our baptisms as tangible, physical evidence that God has provided, both promised and provided righteousness for us in his son. Hey, that is how we can look back on our baptisms and be encouraged by it. You see, Jesus Christ not only turned our hearts towards God, Jesus not only transforms our affections so that we love God more than we love the sin that we were living in, he not only does that, but he removes every single record of wrong, past, present, and future, and he replaces it with the righteous record that he himself has fulfilled. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God knew that our, our repentance even would be affected by our sin. So God has sent a representative on our behalf to lead us and bring us in to the true repentance that he displayed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
God, we praise you, we thank you for the kindness and the mercy that you've shown to us in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf. God, thank you that he brings us into true, truly restored relationship with you, God. Lord, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. God, thank you so much for our wonderful Savior. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.